Guys, when I need stencils, I use Stencil Plus. They make all my stencils. They have the lowest price guaranteed with free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks, and they will make you a free company logo stencil. Free. They're very active on social media. They're always interacting. There's thousands of stencils to choose from that they already have, and they can create anything, any stencil that you need. They listen to us as the customers for what we want, and that's very important to me and my company. The other big thing is listeners of BB get 10% off their entire order when they use the code BB10 at checkout online. So if you put an order in for a thousand bucks and you use BB10, you're going to get a hundred bucks off your order. Crazy. Check them out on all social media platforms. They're very active, like I said, on all social media and will interact with you. Or you can go to stencilplus.com, check them out and put it in order. I want to take a brief moment and tell you guys about the RPS Network. It's a group of contractors who get access to fantastic deals from preferred vendors. The membership is only $100 per year, and you get access to huge discounts from deals that Royal Payment Solutions has negotiated. Some of the vendors include takeoff software, signs and logos, and marketing materials, stencils, diamond saw blades, utility markouts, marketing video creators and editors, so this thing has a massive value at $100, as I can imagine it will quickly pay for itself. They're actively negotiating other incredible discounts for more vendors, and they're going to be adding them to the list as they become finalized. So why not get in early on the ground floor? To sign up, you can go to royalpaymentsolutions.com slash rps-network, or you can also message Ken on Instagram at royalpaymentsolutions. If you need spray tips, I know the hookup, Liberty Supply. Liberty Supply is family owned and operated. And every time you call, one of the owners answers the phone and that owner fills your order. Making spray tips is their craft, but customer service is their passion. They've been serving the asphalt industry for over 29 years, but they don't just do spray tips. They also have an extensive product line to accommodate nearly any and all tool needs that we in the asphalt industry could need. And not only that, it gets to you in a hurry. They package it up. The owners package it up and send it to you from the top down. Information is knowledge. Knowledge is power. And the guys at Liberty are listening to the podcast and us so that they can keep gaining knowledge on what we want and need. If you want a free catalog, call Sam at 800-397-9907 or visit www.libertysupply.biz. That's LibertySupply.biz. I get asked a lot about our Rye 30 crack sealant melter. It's been a game changer for us. RhinoWorks designs and manufactures portable crack sealing equipment, and they're the first in our industry to do it with an internal burner. The products they make melt rubber faster, they use less fuel, and they nearly eliminate flameouts. And I can vouch for all those points. They're a proud company, and they take pride in the products being built on the contractor feedback. I gave them feedback. They used it, honestly, truthfully. They're on social media, so you can check them out, and they will interact with us as contractors. The safety, reliability, and production increases are enough that anybody should check them out if they're looking to upgrade or replace a unit. The units are easy to use. You can check them out at rhinoworks.com. That's R-Y-N-O-W-O-R-X.com. Or you can check out a video of Lee and I at the Rhino Works booth checking out the Elite this year at National Pavement Expo on the Blacktop Banter YouTube channel. All right, 
Let's get going with the podcast. Hey everybody, welcome Black. Welcome back to Blacktop Banner. This is episode 22. And first and foremost, a shout out as always. This shout out goes out to Jonathan Sam of Sam Seal Coating and Striping in Battleground, Washington. So if it isn't hard enough out there to be a seal coater, uh, you live in a place called Battleground. So that's pretty cool and probably intimidating as well. Real quick, I want to mention the giveaway right here behind me. Um, these are just a couple things in the giveaway this month. Don't forget to enter yourself by following us on YouTube or by sharing the podcast and tagging us in there. So we know you're in there. All right. So we've been getting some good guests. We're going to keep it going with some more guests. I'm going to do some solo podcasts coming up, but I want to introduce Colby Parks. So I'm really digging into how pavement affects all kinds of different people and all kinds of different careers. And Colby was is i guess we can say is the 2018 street luge world champion so colby you want to introduce yourself and uh tell us where you're at in the world and how you got started doing all this man my name's uh colby parks i'm from prince edward county ontario canada and i uh started street luging in around 1997 when i saw uh street luge on the x games uh some of my friends you know, they really knew I loved the, the Olympics and they said, Colby, you need to check this thing out called the X Games. It's new. It's, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like the Olympics, but for sports, we like, like bicycling and skateboarding and rollerblading. So I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. So I've always loved auto racing since I was little. And the first thing that came on was street luge. And it was almost, it was, it was, I still have the clip of the first time I saw luge and it was like love at first sight. I saw that and I was like, I have to do that. It's wild. So I went out in my garage and found my old skateboard that I'd got for Christmas a few years earlier that, you know, I was just terrible on. <laughs> and I, I got some, I got some, being from Canada, we have a whole lot of uh, skis, uh, snow skis in the basement. So we, I took off some bindings, off some snow skis and drilled them to the top of the skateboard. And that was my first street luge. Crazy, dude. Crazy. So we, you grew up on a farm, am I correct in saying yeah. that? Yeah, the farm was a really good place and it really nurtured my street illusioning because around the same time we were doing a lot of renovations. So there's a lot of plywood about. So uh, I made a plywood track in the backyard and I banked it with tires and other things. And <laughs> that's how I, got, I, I rode that plywood track for a long time and uh, it was a lot of fun. And that's how I got started in sport. So well, tell me about like your first competition, like when you first went to any kind of competition, were you, re were you ready? Do you think, or were you just like, dude, I'm going completely out of my element here, you know, because these people are coming from here or there or whatever. I mean, you went from a plywood track to the very first pavement one, obviously. Did you practice at a different pavement before you went to competition? You know, well, how does that work? I don't know that transition, man. Like any other racing, I know most of the transitions. Well, it was an interesting transition because one day me and my buddies who from school, my teammates, Ira and Nick, we were just kind of standing around one day. It was like, what are we going to do? And we had our, we had made some boards in high school at a, in shop class when we had finished our normal work. And we just one day kind of looked at it and was like, why don't we just go to a normal road? Because we had just been riding the plywood track for years. <laughs> and, 
So we went out on the out on the on the road and was like, okay, this we were not prepared for the difference in speed because the trucks we were using at the time were they're just regular skateboard trucks, so they weren't meant for speed at all. And also they're really old, probably like 10, 20 years old. Right. And the wheels too. The wheels were hard as rocks. So we did that. It was it was pretty fun. And then around when I got into college, I found a, uh, a street luge on eBay, a professional street luge. So I managed to get that for a really good price. And then we rode it down that same hill and we're like, oh, okay, this is, this is how this is supposed to feel. This feels great. So after, you know, a couple of years of that is when the internet first started coming uh, through with videos and stuff or races, I figured out how to get to my first race. And it was in 2006 in Bainbridge, Ohio. How old, were you, how old were you, Colby, in your, in your first race then at 2006? 2006, I would have been 21 years old. Okay. So I, I had been riding the plywood track and random hills around my house on the road for, you know, a good, good 10 years, just kind of messing around. Right. So, the, so when I got to Ohio, I, I knew that the track was going to be a far more intense than I had ever done. But when we rolled up to this hill in Ohio, I took one look at it where the hay bales were and I'm like, that's not where we're riding. Is it that we, that's not, that's not possible. Like, <laughs> it, was, it was so much steeper than I had thought it was going to be. And I was like, Oh no, this is, this is far beyond anything I've ever done before. So, and even, even now when people come to this race, I found out since that this hill, you know, is, is one of the most intense hills in oh, the world. Yeah. And you know, people like last year I had a, couple friends frank williams and ryan farmer who are both world champions in their own right they came to this hill for the first time ever and they had been riding for a long time and they looked at that hill it was like whoa like it was it was intense we got up to around 75 miles an hour and it, it yeah i, yeah, I had a really good teeth on that one you cut your teeth on like the one yeah, yeah. all I, right fair enough I, I definitely stepped into the deep end because also it was also a world cup Oh, so all the all the best guys were there, guys who I you know idolized growing up watching on TV at the X Games, like Dave Ald, Mike McIntyre, Bob Osman, John Fryer, all these guys, these great losers who I was like, it's like, oh my goodness, like out of nowhere, I'm there. raw rookie, never seen a proper hill in my life, and now I'm sitting on the line. And my very first heat on race day was actually against the the reigning world champion. Dang, so man. my my very first race was like, oh boy, this this, this is how'd gonna you, how'd be you trouble. Do, how'd you do, Colby, on that first? Oh, race? I I got I got really amped up for the race, and you know there was no way I was gonna beat those guys. Right. So, but I went into the first corner, and you know I tried to just take it just a little too fast, and I crashed into the hay. I was completely fine. <laughs> got but it. I actually have a video of myself going through the chicane where, which is the fastest part of the course. Uh, somebody managed to get a great video from up in the trees and the speed I went through the chicane was about as fast as everyone else, even the pros were doing it. So I was so mad that I just threw caution to the wind and blasted through the fastest part of the course. So it was, it was a good, it was a good trial by fire. Cool, man. That's a cool story to start with, man. I think that's kind of, you jump into something that intense, that fast, it makes everything else kind of gravy. You know, you put yourself in that high stress situation. So, uh, when did when when did you know? Like, obviously, that was your first one, and, and obviously, you must have loved it. Just the atmosphere, being there, and actually being on it. 
when did you be like, all right, I'm going to pursue this regularly because you know, you got to travel, obviously it's an expense like anything else. So when were you like, was it that first race? And you're like, Oh yes, I'm in for life. And I got to keep going. Like I said before, I've always loved auto racing and pretty much everybody who does street luge wanted to be a race car driver but just couldn't afford it. It's basically, it's, it's, it's auto racing without the engine because yeah. you still, all the other racing rules apply like drafting, braking, yep. maintaining momentum through the corner. So it's, it's very much auto racing for people who can't afford to go auto racing. You get that adrenaline still. Yeah. And the first time uh, I really, went really hard real serious was i believe it was 2000 yeah it was 2009 uh, i had bought new leathers uh, i bought a new board that was more suited to me and we my myself and my teammate will we went to europe for the first time and you know we had done about you know six or seven races at fairly good hills like with good competition and we thought you know yeah, we're going to do okay. We didn't think we were going to be winning necessarily, but yeah, we'll do okay. And if we went there and we qualified, I think 28th and 29th out of 32 guys in our first race in Europe. So like, Oh boy. Okay. We got some work to do. <laughs> uh, we, we just didn't know what we didn't know. So we go in there we, we did a couple years in Europe. We're like, okay. And we got our, uh, our feet wet with real international competition. And to this day, Europe is the place to go to if you really want the bet a the best uh, racing hills the fastest hills and b the the best competition everyone's still kind of is kind of habit at this point everyone just kind of descends on europe and for the best races well uh so i know you were talking earlier about the trucks you know uh, and and i asked i i want to know the difference between a butt board and a street luge because you know Butt board's just fun to say. Street loose sounds very cool. Don't get me wrong, but butt board's fun to say. So yeah. if you kind of want to tell me the difference, that'd be cool. So the difference between butt board or classic luge is kind of interchangeable, the terms. Uh, butt board is basically a piece of wood that's there's a very, it's kind of our spec class mm -hmm. for entry level riders. So all you need is a piece of wood. It can be a maximum of four feet long, one foot wide, a certain diameter wheel, 76 uh, millimeter wheels, um, and that's it. It's bare bones, only two trucks. So it, you, every, it's kind of everyone's on an evil, even playing field. Uh, with the street luge, you can make a street luge out of any material you want. Mine right there, even though it looks like it's made out of wood, it's actually made out of carbon fiber. Wow. Uh, and you can, it can be as heavy as you, you can be up to 55 pounds. You can have up to eight wheels on it. Um, you can, you can have it about a foot or a yeah, foot past your feet. If you want to two feet behind your head, if you wanted, not many people do that nowadays just because of the potential for contact and in racing situations, but it's basically an unlimited class. Do people make different, do you still see all kinds of different kinds or are people, are they more comfortable with different kinds or is there kind of a, a set one that people mostly try to stick to a style? There's kind of a, a style of the drops. Uh, like that's, that's one of the other big differences between buttboard and street loose. A street loose can be dropped. So it can be like, you know, a centimeter, half a centimeter oh, off the ground. Really close. Where a buttboard has to be flat and, you know, Level. it's higher off the ground. 
Um, but in general, you know, a street luge is dropped. It's about, you know, about four or five feet long okay. and so that, with that's handles. A, that's a butt board over your right shoulder. Street luge over your yes, left shoulder. So when we're looking at correct. when we're looking at the street luge there with all the stickers and stuff, that side's facing up, correct? Yes. yes. This the the end you see here that that would be where my head is with the headrest. Dang, dude. So um, I'm on a the the I see the red pad. Um, what 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 goes where the red pad is? Well, that is where where I would sit. Okay. This is actually a uh, surfing pad that okay. I picked up in Australia. And it keeps kind of keeps me gripped on here so I don't slide around because you can imagine we're turning at a hundred uh, kilometers an hour. The G forces are actually pretty significant and would probably pull you right off to of whichever way you're turning. That's wild. So you need to be able to stick. Dang, Colby. So that's, that's why that's on there. So are those trucks that are in there, um, are they, are they, they have bearings and oil in there or grease, I mean, or it's something for that high intensity speed or, or are they just wide open? Yeah, I see them. Well, now. Our, the trucks, I have Roman trucks here and the way that it works is there's a, there's a bushing on either side, uh, board side and road side. And, uh, you can put the bushings have different durometers for different hardnesses in them. So, and the back, for example, usually put a harder in the back because sometimes you stuff you unweight it so you don't want it to wobble as much where the front is where you do a lot of your turning. So, at least for me, a lot of other guys steer from the back and it's all personal preference. So basically it's almost like our, almost like our springs. Yep. Like, um, if you change it to softer, it'll turn better. But then again, at high speed, it might wobble out from under you. Dude, that's so, crazy, that's crazy to think that there's so many different variables in your guys's uh, vehicles, I guess, because like in every other race, like everyone is almost exactly the same. Like they, you know, we want it to be, I, I, you know, I used to race ATVs and there were certain CCs you had to be by and everyone had to be almost fit into the same shell. Same thing with, uh, I know I, I had Spencer Boyd on a couple weeks ago and he was telling me like, dude, it literally comes down to who wants to push it the hardest because the, the vehicles are almost exactly the same. But then when you see yours with six wheels, some people got eight wheels, some people got four wheels and they can be different lengths, different choices, different stiffnesses, different softnesses. That's wild to think that, you know, that that's like uh, still allowed, like, you know, that there's not an advantage that's so great that people are like, Oh, you can't do that anymore. You know what I mean? Well, you got to remember too, like that thing altogether weighs around 18 pounds. So it's actually extremely light for a street luge. Usually they're weigh around 22 to 24. Um, and you know, there's guys like me who are kind of, you know, the average weight of a street loser is around 170, 180 pounds, but there's guys who, you know, 130 pounds. There's a couple, there's a couple girls who are like 130 pounds and there's a couple of guys who, you know, are, older big guys and they they weigh 250 pounds and it's it's really interesting to drive on the same track as somebody like that because the the one of the big guys at one of our races I we're going down the final straight about 100 kilometers an hour and I get the draft on him I pull out and I hit a wall of air and I can't get by him and hit his weight pushes him through that air really so much better than my, me you almost have to play up but then in the corners you know he asked us hits to is more trouble for him to slow down and get around the corner. So it's the big balancing act to. That's wild, so, dude. Yeah. That's wild to think there's that many variables and that, that, that weight 
my size would have an advantage. You know, really, that's a nice for me to hear, actually, honestly, that a bigger guy has an advantage on the straightaway at anything, let alone yeah. a, a race. So I want to ask you about, um, uh, you know, pavement conditions. Of course, you know, this the blacktop banter is all about blacktop. Um, do you only race on blacktop? Do you guys race on concrete? Are there transitions between cement and blacktop at all? Or is it all on pavement, blacktop pavement most of the time? It's usually all on blacktop. There are obviously different places in the world have different, um, uh, different, the mix, you know, uh, yeah, the mixes. mixes. Like, yeah. for example, in Italy, all the roads are very pebbly, oh. kind of a little older. And it's also extreme. Usually, I don't know why we always, why we always schedule our races in August in Italy, but it's so hot, the, the, the pavement, and you just slide. You know, combined with the pebbly pavement and the heat, you just, you know, you just slide along, which is a lot of fun, but sometimes uh, it's kind of frustrating because you're trying to grip up and you think it should, but it doesn't. Well, um, in, in Canada, I'm going to just venture out and say there's a lot more firmer pavement because of the granite that would be in the asphalt pavement. Does, do you notice that at all? Does the, the pavement firmness, obviously when it's hotter, it's going to slide a little more because the oils in there are getting hot and things like that. And then obviously the texture you were telling me about the, you know, the pebbly surface, um, the, how does it affect you? The differences in the pavement besides it being hot and cold, you know, is there a difference between new pavement versus old pavement? Do you like one better than the other? I mean, um, some of these roads I'm guessing have cracks that have been filled at some point. Yeah. And that's a complete different texture than the pavement. That's a rubber, you know, it's an oil rubber compound. Yeah. You, you hit those and feel those and keep feeling those on your tires or anything. Like, tell me about it all, man. There's a couple of times where you try to like there, for example, there was a, a patch, uh, at, I did a race in Whistler and the Whistler road actually felt a lot like the road in Italy. It was very slippery. Um, it's quite pebbly, but there was a new patch that they had like, set in and it was a lot it was like a new smooth black black top and I found that going through that at certain points of the day was faster because it was so smooth it would you would just it was actually a perfect strip you could go right along and it was great but then again when it got really hot in the day it got really gummy so I would go in there and I felt like I was hitting hitting the brakes almost so it was a very uh, kind of interesting thing and also another thing is when it rains it becomes very interesting. Like that road in Italy, a couple of my friends tried to ride it at a practice session when it rained and they came back and they were just shaking their heads and like they couldn't even go 20 kilometers an hour without sliding out. So, and then there's other tracks. I did a track in Romania, which has a great kind of semi grippy grit on it. And we were able to race it at a hundred plus uh, in the pouring rain. So wow. it, it so really that seal or whatever they had on it that had that yeah. grip to it really caught the wheels and, and allowed you guys to go. Does that, um, th what, what, what about the wheels? What are they made out of? What are your wheels made out of that? And, and how do they interact? Is it like a gum or is it a, a, a it, rubber? Yeah, it's actually, our wheels are made of urethane. This is the wheel I use primarily. It's a Venom Cannibal. It's 76 millimeters tall and uh, it has a 76 duro. So the higher the durometer, um, yep. the harder the wheel is. So it's, all, it's a bit of a balancing act with a durometer too, because if you have too soft, it'll grip too much in the straights and it'll slow you down. But if you have too hard, it's gonna slide. 
a lot of the that's our just like racing. our technique has really changed. Yeah, just just like racing, just like racing, um, tires. And then, crazy. Yeah, just like racing tires. And we, I also have from my sponsor Harfang. We have oh, these. Holy, kind of, holy dude, those are cool. These are for specifically for rain riding. And the first time I rode these, uh, I, it was a race at Burke, Vermont. And the first two rounds, I just used my, I forgot my wheels, uh, the, my rain wheels at the bottom. So I used my standard slicks and just no grip at all. It was just awful. But then I threw these on and they were a prototype at the time. And then I won my next heat against the guy who hadn't lost the heat in five years. Do, do, you think it's, do you think it's the water coming out of the treads that are in, cut into that? Or is it the treads actually gripping on to some of the it, stuff and allowing you to go or combination, I guess? It's a little both. Are, the, the thing that really grips the road in luge are the edges. So you can see the edges are very sharp. Uh -huh. So the sharper your edges, the more that it'll grip Bite on, it. on the edge. Okay. These, um, I think they're faster straight line because one, the the uh, the rain will go in the grooves, so you don't it doesn't have to push the water out of the way. Yeah. And it also does make a different sound. I've had people ride behind me when I've had harfangs on, and they say it's just like a Formula One spray. It really sucks to be behind <laughs> somebody who's riding this in the rain because it's water day. like none other. Yeah. So, we when, when I used to, I told, uh, actually at that. Go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, you go so, ahead. So. At that, at that race in Burke, um, it actually started drying out. So uh, it, it, there was parts of the track around the corners that were dry. So I could feel my wheels heating up through the corners. And I started to slide a lot more because there's less surface area. So it started to, to slide. So what I had to do, it was my wheels would get so hot, they wouldn't stick anymore. So down the straights, I would, had to do what you would see in a Formula One or any car race, road race where they seek out the water to cool down their wheels. And it was one of the weirdest experiences of my life and with the gradually drying track over the heats that we did that day. So I learned a lot about uh, rain riding that day. And it's crazy, dude, to think an innovation yeah. came like that. You know what I mean? To where like, they're like, oh, we're gonna have to groove these out. So maybe it'll help us out. Maybe it'll work better. Do, do your tires on those really hot tracks, do you, do you, is there pavement in them? like embedded into them or anything like that? Or do, do they come out clean every time, even if they're really hot? Well, here's a example of what one, like between a brand new wheel and an old wheel, you can see. Oh yeah, the, yeah. It just kind of pumps yeah, this color. Sometimes, on them. yeah, if the oils and stuff come out of the road, there's some other times where I've got to the bottom and I could, I could hear something clicking. I'm like, what the heck is that? And I get down and there's a piece of rubber kind of embedded in the wheel. So they get hot enough that they can pick up things if if they get too hot in a certain tracks that have you know some yeah you know, patches and things like that. Crack so. filling. I would imagine that crack filling. So you got to heat it up, you know, to put it into the cracks as a liquid. So if it's been a hot day out and those wheels are hot coming across it, there's very likely that when that makes contact, it's going to pull some of that up and you're going to feel it as you go down there. Sometimes that's wild, dude. It's wild. There was. I've tried to touch my wheels sometimes up a particularly turny road and they're too hot to actually touch wow. when you get to the bottom. So I really think there's that much friction, you know what I mean? Coming down there, even though, you know, you're a lighter fellow and your board is light, that there's that much friction with that much speed going on to those things. How many, how, like how many do you use one set of wheels per day or like how, how does that go usually? Usually for the race, um, it's very, 
people have been starting to change wheels for every round of racing. Usually we have only two or three rounds of racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a weekend, I would usually, for all through practice, and maybe for one qualifying, I would use a set of wheels for that and then put on for the race cool. and then just kind of recycle it through that way. Because, you know, it, eventually the, each set of these wheels is around $80 for a set of four. And I use six. Yeah, I, I see so, the street luge one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to know uh, real quick uh, before we get on to uh, asking more about pavement conditions and stuff, uh, the world speed record on the butt board. So um, what, tell me about that experience and what it was like, uh, because uh, I don't know what that transitions to at um, one, you know, was it 131 you were at? Um, what does that transition to? Mile 131 is around 131 is around 80 miles an hour, I believe. Wee. And that's on the butt board over your right shoulder. So was that, was it, was that on the butt board? Was that a straight shot down the hill? Yeah, it was, it was just a pure straight uh, speed run road. We did a top speed challenge in uh, northern Quebec. It was about four hours north of Quebec City, so way up there. And it was the most amazing experience because you know the feeling when you go over when you're on a roller coaster and you're in the front, you go over the edge and you're like, oh no, here we go. That was the feeling that we got when we crested the the, the heavy part or like the very steep part. Yep. At this hill, it was unbelievable, and every and all you could see before you crest was just the a huge bay of water, and that's all you saw. Then you crested the hill, and you see all of a sudden, you know, the, the wall r- coming at you that you are heading. Oh, my connection is unstable. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just, it was just a wall coming at you, and you just had to make. Sh- have faith that you set up your board properly and your wheels and bearings were going to stay together because it, yeah, it, if something went wrong at those speeds, it'd be not good. Well, uh, when I guess that may, that wants me, makes me want to ask you another question. And uh, it is about like, have you ever been going at an intense speed and wiped out Colby and been like, I mean, I don't know what it's like to wipe out. Is it always safe? You hit hay bales, you hit whatever, and there's no pain? Or have you wiped out and been like, ouch, this is bad? My my first really big accident where I thought, I've been very lucky, knock on wood. I've never broken a bone during this sport, but I acknowledge that I have been very lucky. Uh, there was one, I, I won't ever do it again, but there was a time I drove through the night after work to get to a race. I slept for a couple hours in my car and, you know, got up and, and uh, started practice for the day. And, you know, I had done the road a few times. I thought I had the road pretty memorized and I was coming up. Everyone started kind of breaking and bailing out before this corner. And we were going about, I think, 80 or 90. And I'm like, oh, I started breaking here. This is a long straight. And then I kind of came around the corner and I realized, nope, this is not the long straight. This is where the hairpin's at and I'm not going to be able to stop in time. So in, in that split second, you know, I thought, yeah, I'm probably going to break bones on this. So just try to mitigate, you know, as much as I could, you know. So I kind of, I threw the board sideways, used it as a shield because that's what you get taught by some of the old school guys is that, you know, if you're going into the bales or potentially if you're going fast enough, you could go through the bales in a tree. 
use the luge like a backboard and use it that as impact so you don't hurt your back as much so i hit the the grass and i rolled yeah and uh i had whiplash through my shoulders i hit luckily when i hit my head on the ground a hay bale had moved so i my face hit where the hay bale was yep and i i laid there for a second i wiggled my toes wiggled my fingers and like oh my i think i got out of this okay and I, I took off my helmet at the bottom of the run, and my impact was so heavy that um, I had split my head. My, my helmet, the impact for force, had split my skin on my scalp right at the hairline. And uh, yeah, it was that, that was an intense wreck. Um, other than that, I've had a. That's when usually injuries happen is when you crash and you don't see it coming. Uh, at that same track uh, that I talked to earlier, the Soldier Downhill, on the on my butt board, I had accidentally put too soft a bushing in the rear, and I came into the chicane. I hit the old transition in the chicane where there was a transition in the pavement. Got a violent speed wobble, and it sent me off my board so quick. Uh, there was a guy who was beside me, who has a video of it, and I rolled off my board so quick that there's a freeze frame where I'm on my face completely upside down and I'm still holding my board because oh it happened gosh. so fast. That's crazy. That's so, crazy. I think that it happened so quick that your brain didn't let go of the board, you know, because yeah. it was boom, just that quick, dude. That's wild. Yeah, that, that was a rough one. I, I hit my elbow very, very hard. I got a bone chip. Uh, and while I was rolling – after I let go of my board, my board hit the hay bale and wedged itself in a hay bale. And as I went by, it, it kind of hit me in the gut. So I spent about a good 10 minutes in the ditch, kind of dry heaving because my body was wanting, got hit so hard that it wanted to throw up, but it didn't have anything to throw up. Mm, so it, it was a weird feeling. But, I've been, but again, knock on wood, I've been very lucky that, you know, that could be crash that you know that i was able to walk away from i've never had to go away in an ambulance or anything like that so is, is this a sport that you can compete in for a long time colby absolutely uh there's a couple guys out there who are 60 years old they're that's you know very cool, dude. that's very yeah. cool that you're going to be able to dedicate a lot of time to it if you want to and share it with a lot of people that's yeah cool. that, that that's my plan is you know i've, I've never there's a lot of guys who push it really hard and crash a lot. And I've seen what happens to those types of guys. And usually, that's why in a sport like ours, where it is so dangerous, that usually the guys who are that reckless pretty get weeded out pretty quick because, yeah. you know, they don't want to get hurt. So, you know, I, you know, I want to keep spreading the word of the sport and help as many people get into it as I can. And I'd like to do it as long as I can, if not competitively free ride and just go out with my friends. Yeah, dude, that sounds like a great time. And I mean, it's taking you all over the world, dude. So, I mean, it's pretty cool when you hitch on to something that can take you all over and you can compete and see all different parts of the world and do things like that. When, when you are, what is your favorite type of pavement to compete on? Like, what are the conditions? What do you like? Like, what is your, your best preference for pavement conditions? usually it's it's very similar to auto racing you know if it's around 20 degrees celsius a semi-sunny cloudy day uh pavement you know the pavement's not too hot those are the those are kind of the best conditions to ride in because you get consistent grip um through the day the you know throughout the day you could get uh if the track heats up you could 
all of a sudden have a, if you're pushing the limits, so to speak, you could go into a corner and all of a sudden your breaking point is way too far ahead of where you need to be because the pavement has gotten too hot. So my, my favorite pavement would be stuff that has just a bit of grain in it because if it's very glass top, um, there was a race in Australia last year, tamed the Taipan where it rained. And it was the same thing as the other, it was the exact opposite problem to track in Italy. It was so smooth, there was nothing for the edge of the wheel to grip onto. Gotcha. So guys were just gone, gliding, like there was no grip at all. So you do need a bit of, little bit of aggregate to yeah. uh, get, get that grip on the, so the, uh, so the wheels has something to grip to. Two, two or three years old pavement, sunny, yeah. partly, partly cloudy, partly sunny day. Middle mm -hmm. temperature, you guys are in heaven. Yeah. Uh, we, we've, that, the soldiers of downhill track, the track in Bainbridge, it was, last year it was repaved. And we were always, we were very wary because uh, repaved Bainbridge, the, the cracks in the pavement and the rough kind of kept us honest and kept us being like, okay, we can't go too fast because we'll slide out, but now it's a perfectly smooth road, so now we can just send it. <laughs> so we were all very, very nervous. We are very nervous about going back to it after it got repaved. But we found that our top speeds actually didn't get any higher because it was road was smooth. The wheels almost hadn't, they, instead of riding over the pebbles, it was riding almost through the pavement. And yeah. it was resisting of the wheels a lot. Yeah, more, more friction. friction. There, huh? So uh, the... It was very interesting for that because there was another race in Killington, Vermont. It's very, very pebbly and very slidey. And, I, and we do about 130 kilometer hours in racing mode in that track, which is incredibly fast. And I always said if it, this was repaved, it would be way too fast. Sure. But now it is, it's in a mountain town, so it's been uh, got very harsh winters. So it's degraded a lot. And now I'm saying, you know, the race wasn't going to happen this year just because the pavement has gotten too many cracks in it. But now we were worried that before that it would be too fast if we repaved it. But now with our experience at Bainbridge, we're thinking, okay, actually, no, it actually might actually make it a lot safer. Sure. So um, going back to 2018 uh, when you won the world championship, um, I know you and I had talked earlier about it being in Rio. What is the pavement like in Rio? The pavement was great in Rio. Um, because it rains a lot there, the road uh, was very, it wasn't even, I don't even want to say it was crowned. It was almost rainbowed. Like, really? Because the, they get torrential rainstorms there, so they need a lot of room for the gutters for the rain to go and dramatically and quickly. And so the, the road was weathered, but it was, it was kind of, it was exact kind of pavement I liked, just a little bit of wear on it, but few holes for, you know, for your wheels to grip onto. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun and going, the, the road was very twisty cause it was kind of up in a, in a park. So, uh, going through the corners, it, it was the most I've ever felt like a regular ice luge cause you would, were dipping down in those kind of those grooves. And if you just write, it really felt like almost like a mogul's course. It was like, boom, 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 boom. It was really fun. So what, on that kind of course, when it's really crowned like that, I, is the whole shot very important? I'm guessing you want the middle, correct? 
Uh, well, it depends on what corner comes up first. Usually you would pick the inside lane. So if there's like a, just a kind of a lazy corner to the left, you pick the left. So you have less distance to go. You're so you can inside kind of, the, of that. Yeah. Corner. So you can take the inside and get out in front. Uh, Cause a lot of the, a lot of the racing is one off the push. Cause if, if you're behind, obviously you need to be able to pass and some courses it's very difficult to do. I so getting out in front. I watch some of your – I don't know if you use the GoPro or what you use, but, man, I watch you guys get it and, and really try to get that kick off the front and get it. And whoever can get in front of their first, their arms are just going crazy, dude. I imagine that's a big – that's a major key. Yeah, uh, that was one of the keys to my world championship season that I took a good eight months training my push through Olympic lifting and pushing my luge at the local hockey arena. Uh, with weights to practice my starts all through the winter time, and that was a big key to my success. Now, now you've shared it. Yeah, everybody. Now they I, they yeah. all know what I do. Oh, oh, oh! Well, it is what it is. Then, um, I want to ask you about the future. Obviously, I know we've talked about it a little bit. You want to do this for a while. Um, is there any big plans in the future? You got to seem to have a good momentum. I know uh, your buddies. You were talking about Ryan and the rest of the crew. Um, you guys seem to be carrying, you know, you want to advance the sport, get people out there, you know, um, and get it out there. And uh, we're glad to help with that. What is, what's the future look like for, for yourself and for the, the sport, my friend? Well, in the, in the future, we've just been able to get together with world skate, which is the sanctioning body for uh, all, all things roller, which are, you know, uh, inline skating, like speed skating, Mm -hmm. uh, in summertime, uh, vert street skating, skateboarding, um, things like that. So we were able to get together with them in this pat in 2019, we had the, f we were invited for, to the world roller games. And it was basically almost like a mini Olympics they had an opening ceremony. They had, you know, medals, uh, podiums, like everything was legit. Oh, you know, we had to you had to apply through your national federations and things like that. So it felt very, very legit and important. And we had the biggest luge race we've had probably since the X games, at least 20 years, we had about 50 riders. And, you know, I had said for years, like as long as there would be a big race that we could all get behind, people would see that we would, we have a lot of riders because a lot of our races have, you know, 20 riders or so. And they're like, Oh, we couldn't really do a big race with that. And I'm like, they're, we have a lot of riders we're just very spread out yep so this one with you know about 45 50 riders really show that okay there is a you know a market for if we have a big race and the race went off great um and hopefully these are the guys who are working closely with the olympic committee so we're trying to work with them to potentially get an olympics i think that's probably far off but the downhill skateboarders who we race at the same events with, um, they have a lot of riders. And if we're going to get in, we're probably going to get in through the backs of those guys. The only issue with us now is even though we have a lot of riders, all of them are guys. And in order to, one of the requirements for an Olympic sport is you need to have a men's and women's class. Mm -hmm. So there aren't a whole lot of women who do the, who do street lose right now. So we're going to have to take it upon ourselves to train a, a whole bunch of girls to I was going to say, out. dude, all those street losers are like, 
all right, honey, it's time to strap in. You know, I was like, all right, you know, all these girlfriends and wives are, <laughs> are going to become street losers. Like, all right, let's let's get this in here, honey. We got to get going because uh, uh, we we've had Olympic dreams, girl. We got Olympic. Ask my girlfriend if she wants to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I asked my girlfriend if she wants to do it, and she's kind of like, yeah, I think I'll just take a video from the sidelines. Very cool, man. Very cool. Well, I wish you the best. If, I, if ever we can help with anything, uh, we'd be glad to. Um, any last words? We're going to sign off here, man. I really appreciate you being here and, and giving us a shot with the podcast. It's been a great conversation. Very insightful into the pavement and the way that it affects you, and that's what we're going for. Um, any last words, any ways we can help out as, um, normal citizens that watch these intense videos of you all riding so close together, anything? Well, with, with the, uh, worldwide pandemic now, as you know, pretty much everything is shut down. So we probably won't get much racing in this year, but if you're interested in street luge, uh, there's many Facebook groups, uh, street luge is not a crime is one of them on street luge. That's very good. Um, you know, if uh, our international sanctioned body is the International Downhill Federation. So if you're interested in going to a race, uh, seeing where they're at, we have races on everywhere around the world every year. Where, so where, where are you the closest you want, to Colby, what, where's the race that's closest to me? I want to come see you race. So I'm in, I'm by Madison, Wisconsin. So is it going to be Ohio? Am I going to go watch the crazy hill again or where are we going? Yeah. Actually, that would be a great place. The, the Ohio race would be perfect for you. There's another race in, uh, in New York as well, if you want to go maybe I'm a little further. When you go to Ohio, you're going to point to the hill and be like, Marvin, that's the one. That's what I was telling you about. That, you know, And then I'll be like, all right, I'm going to sit down here and watch you come down it then. So yeah. very cool, dude. Well, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I really hope everyone gets interested. Dude, I, I, I went down a rabbit hole of watching GoPro luge videos like just preparing for this and then two hours went by and I was sweating watching them dude I was just like oh my gosh this stuff is intense so I really look forward to meeting you man in person I want to go out there you stay messaging me and when Ohio comes I will make a special trip out there and we will check it out um any any last words of the last words I cut you off before your final words well thank you very much for having me on the podcast and uh just hope everyone rides safe and we'll see you on the hill Cool. Very good. All right. That's it for me and Colby. We, uh, this is an international podcast, man, even though you're my neighbor to the north. But we want you to seal it, pave it, stripe it, and kill it. Peace. And I'm glad to announce that we have a coffee sponsor for the podcast. Brouhaha Roasters is a small batch artisan coffee roaster dedicated to providing the freshest roast. This company was started by three guys who love coffee, they're friends, and they always want to find the perfect blend, and that's what brought them together. Matt Snow, Pat Mahoney, and Aaron Halverson live in River Valley area where we live, and in addition to being brouhaha craft roasters, they're educators, coaches, technology consultants, band directors, creating a diverse blend of life and roasting. I know these guys personally. I drink the coffee personally. They're right next door, the next town over in Spring Green, Wisconsin. And I personally like Buxom Blend the best, but they have many, many more flavors. Good Sumatran, Whirling Dervish. If you go online to the website, brouhaharoasters.com, 
you can get free shipping on all orders over 30 bucks. You can also sign up for a coffee subscription. I'd be sure to try to check these guys out if I were you on Instagram at Brouhaha Roasters and on Facebook at Brouhaha Roasters. I do want to mention their website one more time because they have a 10% off code for all Brouhaha coffee and the code is Blacktop Banter. And you can find that again at BrewhahaRoasters.com. That's B-R-E-W-H-A-H-A-R-O-A-S-T-E-R-S.com. So I'm sure you guys have seen the 1-800 blacktop number plastered on the side of my pickup truck lately. That number comes from the 800 Pavement Network. That network is made up of over 200 leading pavement contractors throughout the U.S. and Canada who combined generate over a billion dollars in sales. You could join now if you'd like. You can get your own exclusive number, the rights to it, and it can help you grow your business. What you get from the 800 Payment Network is the most powerful, memorable, and effective marketing number tool in the industry. All the calls that go to that number go directly to you. You get the rights to the brand, and you can display your number however you'd like. You become eligible for the national account work through U.S. Payment Services. The 800 Payment Network has awarded over $125 million in national work to its members and is constantly giving out more and more projects to the members. You get exclusive access to all the network events, and you get the opportunity to learn and grow from companies like yours. Check them out on Instagram at 800 Payment Network and online at 1-800-Payment.com. Guys, if you want to bump your sales or operations of your company, I recommend you check out Top Contractor School. They offer different levels of live coaching in sales mentorship and operations mentorship. They also have virtual training with monthly elite memberships or annual elite memberships. They include a private Facebook group, downloads for reference material, and two 30 to 45 minutes conference calls per month and much more. I've been part of the conference calls. The nice thing about those, not only do you get the coaching and the insight from top contractor school, but you also get to network with other contractors, develop relationships with them, which also leads to more insight and more success. Check out the Facebook page for top contractor school. Check out the Instagram page at top contractor school and check out topcontractorschool.com. Right now they have a code if you're a veteran for 50% off all training products the code is VETS50, B-E-T-S 50. Check them out.